our hearts are ready, so let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your spirit, but in a way, Lord, today uh, we do it under advisement. Help us to understand. Help us to hear this word today, and help us to hear it in the right way, because this could be taken wrong, but there's an important message in this for us. Help us to hear the right things. In Jesus' name, amen. So what have we learned so far? We've been focused on on the subject of the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we started out with Jesus' words to his disciples. He told them to go, but before you go, wait. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise from the Father. For in not too many days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This was the word to them. And as we've explored this and and developed this, we found out that the promise is not just for them, but Peter said the promise is also for you, the people who he was talking to, those of you who are close, but also to those who are far off. So this promise that God was going to give his Holy Spirit was for the 12, and it was to enable them to do mission, but it wasn't just for the 12. It was for everyone far off. And the far off part means in every way. Far off in terms of not being a Jew, you still can have it. Far off in terms of not living in Judea, you still can have it. Far off in terms of not being in the days of the disciples, you still can have it in 2022. The promise is for all who will believe. And Jesus said, when the promise comes, you will be my witnesses. So the Holy Spirit came in great power in Acts chapter 2. And when the Holy Spirit fell upon the group, it was obvious to them and it was obvious to others. And we've seen a lot of other stories where the Spirit has come with the Samaritans. It happened after they were baptized, when the, the disciples came and laid hands on them. And it was obvious to them, and it was obvious to others. And later with the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit actually fell on Cornelius and his family before they were baptized, because there was no way they were going to baptize them, come on, until the Holy Spirit said, no, I've chosen the Gentiles as well. And when it happened, it was obvious to them, and it was obvious to others. We saw in this that Jesus said before he went away that there would be an order in which this uh, spreading of the gospel and the going forth of the gospel would take place. It would be Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and then the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what took place. And the way it took place was even a little unexpected. The believers in Jerusalem were, were growing and there were many of them, but persecution broke out. And many of the people were driven out of their comfort zone and out of Jerusalem. And they went into Judea and Samaria. And everywhere spirit-filled believers went, they testified to the reality of Jesus. And the gospel spread. But then, originally the thinking was, the ends of the earth must just mean the Jews wherever they are. But no, some uh, some of the believers went out. And they weren't careful at all. They told anybody about Jesus. And amazingly, Gentiles started to believe. 
So much so that the church in Antioch started to have a large number of Gentiles in it. So the church in Jerusalem sent people up there to make sure it's okay. And it was okay. And there's a lesson we learn here as well. Even though the story started in Jerusalem, Antioch became the center of evangelism to the world. We also learned that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is associated with baptism. And Jay was talking about the water. There is supposed to be power in the experience. Now, we, we all know there's a baptism, that, and often when we come to baptism, we come in the context of, of I, I confess my sins, I confess that I believe in Jesus, we're put down under the water, symbolically we die to sin, we rise again to a new life, we are washed... But if it ends there, it's just the baptism of John. Because this is what John the Baptist came teaching. But he said, there is one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So associated with this experience of going down into the water and coming back up transformed, there's also a power that becomes available to us. The power of the Holy Spirit. But here's the sad point. There are some who get the baptism in the water, but never receive the Spirit. We talked about that last Sabbath, about Apollos, the perfect ministerial candidate. Yet some of the members took him aside and said, hey, maybe you didn't know. There's a little bit more. And about the ones that Paul encountered who had had the baptism of John but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And as we tell these stories, it's easy to think, wow, this Holy Spirit thing sounds really fun. I really want this Holy Spirit experience. These miracles, it sounds fun. Speaking in tongues, whatever that is, that sounds fun. Intense worship experiences, those sound really fun. And I want to tell you, they are. But I also want to give you a warning today of sorts that we need to take this seriously. Being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit is not a game. There are implications to being filled with the Spirit. And the nature of those implications could well explain why so often in our lives we're not particularly Holy Spirit filled. And that our life as a Christian community is not always typified with signs and wonders and great power. So you can see we're kind of on shaky ground here today because it could a little bit sound like I'm being a little accusatory, but I'm not trying to do that. And after I tell you the stories I'm trying to tell you, it might even sound like I'm, I'm trying to scare you. I'm not so much trying to do that. I just want to put focus back on the reality that the power of God is not a game and it's not a toy. And it's not something we command. We're going to start in the Old Testament with one of those stories of, did it really have to be that bad? 
We have to start in Leviticus chapter 8 in order to have a context here. So if you've got a Bible there, I'm, I'm reading of the same translation of the Bibles in front of you. We don't go to Leviticus all that often, but Leviticus chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, we're setting context here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bowl of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. What's going on here is, is they're about to consecrate Aaron and his sons as the priests. And they've, they've put together a big worship experience to be a part of this. And there's a lot of elements to it. Jump down to verse 10. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. They were being set apart for a special service. Verse 22. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. This is symbolic of confession. And he killed the ram, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on, this is fascinating, the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ear and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. And then verse 30, Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Aaron and his sons did all the things... Verse 36, sorry, verse 36... And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. So this story I'm reading you, so far, so good. They're doing this the way the Lord has asked them to do it. They're following the command. Now go over to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 22. says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. You know, sometimes when you read these Old Testament stories, you realize... We don't take some of this stuff as seriously as maybe we should. Maybe there is something to, to raising our hands. Maybe there's a meaning there. And maybe there's something to having people come before us and speak words of blessing. Maybe we don't take this as seriously as we should. Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burn offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell down on their faces. 
we talk about propriety in worship sometimes, the, the appropriateness, what's, what's the right thing to do in worship, what's the wrong thing to do in worship. We probably would feel like someone was being a little theatrical and over the top if they just kind of fell down on the ground. Maybe that says more about what we expect from worship than it says about God. Because here's my theory. If the angel of the Lord peered above us right now, we'd fall to the ground. So where's the disconnect? This was a powerful worship experience where fire came from the very presence of the Lord. And Aaron and his sons are anointed for the service to which they're appointed. But it wasn't a game. We go to the next chapter. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Now there's a lot. You could do a lot of theological discussion on all this. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but it seems as though they... They breached what the Lord had told them in a way that they brought something different in than what the Lord had said. They brought unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Now listen to these words. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now, what is he saying here? I think this is what he's saying. I think he's saying this is not a game. The power of God is not a toy. And we need to take this seriously. Now, I can't imagine this event. This is just bizarre to me. But that probably says more about me and my experience than it does about God and Israel and what was going on. Here's where I try to get to this story. Nadab and Abihu, these older sons of Aaron, willingly accepted this calling. They, they received all of this indication that this is important, this matters. They received this, anoint, this anointing. But very quickly, they violated what was required of them. And the results were horrible. Now, these Old Testament stories can be pretty rough. And I'm so glad that nothing like this ever happens in the New Testament. Except, have you ever heard this story? It's another one of those stories that starts out great. We're going to Acts, the book of Acts chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 32, again for the sake of context. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. And with great power, notice, because I think this is relevant to the story, with great power, 
the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas' stories are almost always great. Barnabas is this amazing character in Scripture. He's pretty much never quoted, but he's almost always there in, in important times. And here he is being an example. So sometime maybe we'll do a focus on Barnabas and all the things that he gets right. But in the story we're looking at today, Barnabas is not the story. He's the example. So he's the example of what people were doing. They were generously giving and there was great power in this community. But let's go on. Acts chapter 5 verse 1. But a man named Ananias... And his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart, now catch these words, to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Who does Peter say Ananias has lied to? The Holy Spirit. So that's a thing, I guess. Lying to the Holy Spirit. And what constitutes lying to the Holy Spirit? Well, at least in this case, let's go on. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Now, aren't you glad God doesn't strike us dead every time we aren't faithful in giving? It's a startling story, isn't it? But does the fact that we're not struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit, if we do that, does that say more about God or does that say more about us? Acts 5, verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test who? The Spirit of the Lord. Again, the offense is against the Spirit of the Lord, against the Holy Spirit. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church 
and upon all who heard of these things. So what is this Old Testament story doing in the New Testament? And what, if any, is the connection between these stories? Let me suggest to you the connection I see. In both cases, individuals who had received a special anointing to service and the presence of the Holy Spirit then acted defiantly in a deceptive manner in the presence of the Spirit of God. Let me also suggest this. It is no minor thing to stand in the presence of the power of God. And for this reason, for our sakes, let me suggest further, God rarely allows us to stand in the presence of his power, not so much because of the sins committed in our past, but more because we just aren't very righteous, even now. And a full confrontation with the glory of God might leave us more like Nadab and Abihu and Ananias and Sapphira. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not suggesting you're not saved. Salvation is not the product of our own righteousness, but rather the result of our faith in the righteousness of God. But I think there's an important point to understand here. Out of mercy for our condition, could it be that God withholds the fullness of his glory and power? Because we can't handle it. Why? Another story, Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Let me tell you what I hear God saying here. I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to deliver you. You will receive the salvation I have promised. But I cannot be among you as a mighty power. Because you're stiff-necked. And my power might consume you. What do we do with that? What do we do with a story like that? When does God say this? He says this to them right after the golden calf incident. And he tells them, I'm going to keep my promise. But it's probably best if I also keep my distance. Because God knows... They're just not quite as committed as they think they are. There's an interesting comment that Jesus makes at a point in his ministry where his detractors are trying to attribute his work to demons. It comes in Mark chapter 3, verse 28. Mark chapter 3, verse 28. He says this, Truly I say to you, 
All sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they are saying he has an unclean spirit. So what was going on here was Jesus was doing these works and they're saying, that's not God, that's something else. And Jesus said, don't mess around with the Holy Spirit. Don't play games with the Holy Spirit. Call me anything you want. But don't mess around with the power of God. Living life filled with the Holy Spirit is not a game. Though having said that, let me also say, I bet it's more fun than not. To receive the Holy Spirit in power is not something to be asked for lightly. We do not command the Holy Spirit, and we do not direct the Holy Spirit, and we should never treat the idea of being Spirit-filled as if it was obvious and no big deal. It's a huge deal. And we should take it very seriously. Now God is merciful. I know this from experience. And while Nadab and Abihu died for their unrighteous act, God obviously did not strike down every unrighteous priest that came after them. Instead, he just pulled his power away. And not every believer who ever lied to the church fell down dead like Ananias and Sapphira. But pretty much every believer since them has not lived in a community of faith so filled with power and signs and wonders. We don't die when we lie. But there also isn't the power in our midst that was present in the early church. So what does it mean? It's not a game. And we're not in control. I'm going to invite the band to come start making their way back up here. We're all very familiar with John chapter 3 and the great verses of hope and assurance that we find there. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in, the, in, order, that, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God, God sent Jesus that we might be saved. But then he sends the Holy Spirit that we might accomplish his purpose. Above everything I've said today, bear in mind these words. God loves the world. God sent his son to save us. God does not want to see us destroyed, but rather saved. But there's some other words in John chapter 3 as well. Verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We try really hard to put guardrails on the Spirit. We try really hard to tell God what He can and can't do. We try really hard to control this. And yet, even in the midst of our attempt to do this, we live these lives of, of carelessness. Are we faithful on a daily basis with our devotion? Spending time in God's Word, spending time in prayer, seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance. Are we praying for the condition of our own hearts or just praying for the condition of the comfort of our lives? What kind of believers do we want to be? How much of the Spirit of God do you think we are ready to contain? Can God pour out His Spirit on us with power? Or in mercy, does God need to hold the Spirit back? They're just not ready. They're just not ready. Are we harboring secret sins in our heart? Do we cling to these things more than we cling to God? Does anybody here need to be born again? We've been building up to something with this series and and that something I believe needs to be a Sabbath where we consciously pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us. And I confess to you, I don't know for sure what will happen if we do that. All I know for sure is we need to not take it lightly. It's very possible that we would do this and nothing discernible would happen. And this could be an indication of many things, including the fact that we're just not ready. Or it could be that some will experience something very powerful that will be impactful to the rest of their lives, while others will notice nothing at all. That might be the saddest thing. Or maybe tongues of fire will appear. I don't know. And I'm not going to try to guess. But I will put this before you. What needs to happen in your heart before that day? What needs to happen in your heart before that day? I can't help but think it would be good for us to do what the disciples did before the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And then verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. I think we need to devote ourselves to prayer. And that's, that's hard for me to say. I'm, I'm not that guy all the time. This series has been a challenge to me. It forces me to take some things seriously. And ask myself questions like, how open am I to the Holy Spirit? So we sang a song earlier, King of Heaven, come down. That's an invoking of the Spirit.
It's a beautiful song, great words, fun to sing. Don't take it lightly. Don't take it lightly. We're going to sing Waymaker, Miracle Worker. Power of God's not a game. So as the band leads us, don't be entertained. Enter into worship.